tell you from uh, my interactions with him yesterday at dinner, and I know the elders took him to dinner tonight, uh, he is a valuable resource uh, just to talk to uh, about the church, uh, about ministry, and uh, he, he's, he's a great uh, listener, and he's also a great uh, provider of advice, and I know uh, those of you who've had an opportunity to talk to him uh, feel the same. And as the weekend continues, uh, take advantage of this resource that we have uh, with us this weekend. He's, he's preached in many different places, in many different contexts uh, for many years. And uh, that's exciting when you're a minister like myself um, to be able to tap into some of the wisdom uh, that he's able to offer. Uh, we said some of this last night. But I know we have people with us tonight who weren't with us last night, so introduce him. Uh, with us we have Brother Chuck Monan. Uh, he is currently serving as the minister at the Pinnacle Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. Uh, he has been in ministry for nearly four decades, having served in congregations in Michigan, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees from Oklahoma Christian University, uh, where he married his wife, Susan. They have two adult children, correct? Any grandchildren? Three grandchildren. Um, one thing that was of note, many of you may know uh, Dr. Stafford North. Uh, he is very, very much associated uh, with the Oklahoma Christian University, but also a noted writer. Uh, that is... Brother Monan's father-in-law, so he knows how to pick a good family. Uh, I know I've enjoyed some of his writings uh, in my ministry, so I know that there's some people here that have actually passed on some of his books to me, so I know that many of you know him as well. Uh, We're very excited to hear what uh, Brother Monan brings to us tonight. Last night, he talked about uh, the church having a crisis of confidence. Uh, in this world we live in today. That's what he's talking about tonight, the world we live in. And what an opportunity we have this weekend as we try to focus on how the church is a home. It is the household of God. And we're very excited to hear what you have to preach to us tonight, brother. Thank you, Ben. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Boy, I came down here to Georgia to enjoy some of that balmy southern weather. It's kind of cold out here. Uh, For those of you that think this is cold, though, I I saw the weather girl on the TV today. She said Wednesday the low is going to be 15. 15. 15 is cold in Alaska, much less Georgia. So uh, I I hope all you Georgians survive. I'll be back in Arkansas where I think it's going to be Three. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, Florida's next, maybe, I hope. Uh, but we're glad that you're here tonight. I appreciate your presence so very much. I know we'll have a good day tomorrow as we uh, finish this weekend with uh, three different lessons on topics that I hope and pray uh, will be timely. I appreciate uh, Ben's hospitality last night, the hospitality of the elders tonight. You know, the Bible says that uh, bad company corrupts good character. 
I guess the opposite of that, when you're around good company, that enhances good character. And I appreciate uh, the elders that you have here, the good spirit that they have. You can tell that these are men of God, and they love this church, and they want this church to thrive and to do well, and continue to support them and pray for them and all the work that you do. Uh, it was not too long ago, well, okay, it was 30 years ago, so that was a while back, but there were some Georgia boys who now are headquartered in Atlanta, uh, but I think they were from a place called Strongbridge. Is that a place, actually, uh, somewhere? Uh, I thought it was Athens, but it wasn't there. But what's that? Stockbridge, thank you, not Strongbridge, Stockbridge. There was a band called Collective Soul. I saw them in concert in Arkansas at one time, but they had a song called The World I Know. And part of the lyric includes the following. Has our conscience shown? Has the sweet breeze blown? Has all the kindness gone? Hope still lingers on. I drink myself of newfound pity, sitting alone in New York City, and I don't know why. Are we listening to hymns of offering? Have we eyes to see that love is gathering? All the words that I've been reading have now started the act of bleeding into one, into one. So I walk upon high and I step to the edge to see my world below. And I laugh at myself while the tears flow down because it's the world I know. Oh, it's the world I know. As people like me and you grow older and prepare to shuffle off this mortal coil, hopefully not any time in the next you know, month or year or anything, but eventually we're going to go the way of all the earth, as the scripture tells us. And at that time, or maybe even before, Gen Z will emerge as leaders. Generation Z that group of people born between 1999 and 2015. The world I know will soon be the world that they know. And it seems to me that while we're still here, we can do these youngsters a great, great service by teaching them, by mentoring them, by modeling for them what it means to be a faithful man, to be a faithful woman of God. I just had the opportunity uh, a few weeks ago to speak to over 3,000 young people at the EYC Youth Conference in Huntsville. I think there were some folks from the Buford congregation there. I got to see them. In fact, Brother McGreevy came up and said, I hate that you're going to be there, that I'm not going to be there. We're going to be gone doing some things, but... What a fine young man. I know there were some fine young people that were with him as well. But we talked that night about the world that we live in. And I want to share some of these thoughts with you this evening because this is a really key concept if the church is going to thrive and go forward as God would have it. In her book, Generations, psychologist Jean Twenge tells us some helpful things about Gen Z. Listen to just a few of the highlights that she focuses on. 
First, Gen Z grew up in a post-9-11 world. A lot of us had been doing a lot of living before that fateful day took place. But for these young people, that's really all that they have known. Uh, they didn't even really get a chance to go from Barney to Bin Laden. It was just straight to Bin Laden. And for some of them, it was rather jarring as they came of age and started coming up and becoming uh, more and more conscious to recognize that there are people in this world that want them dead, even though those people don't even know them. But that's part and parcel of the world that we know. Gen Z has also continued the trend toward the slow life strategy. Now, I don't understand this thing about these young people at all, so i got to get this off my chest a little bit. One of the highlights in my life, I mean to this day, was December the 20th, 1979. I can tell you exactly what I was doing. I was going down with my dad to the Secretary of State's office in Flint, Michigan, and I took my driver's test and I got my driver's license. And let me tell you, as Eddie Rabbit would say, I've been driving my life away ever since that moment. I don't know that I look forward to, to anything more than getting a driver's license. And it turned out that was a really cool thing. Now, as a little kid, I was looking forward to getting old enough to shave. Shaving's a drag, let me tell you. I, I hate shaving. And if it weren't for my wife's incessant griping every time I get a beard, I'd look like Grizzly Adams up here. But you see, I'm clean shaven, and that's testimony to her tendencies, not my own. But these young people today, I've asked a bunch of them. I said, now look, I, I'm trying to understand you all, so help me. Why is it that when a lot of you turn 16, you don't get a driver's license? I've had various ones that, well, you don't really need a driver's license. Well, what do you mean you don't need? Well, my friend has a driver's license. I'm like, yeah, well, my friend operates an Uber. So what? What does that have to do with me? I want to be able to drive. I want to be able to go here and go there. But they just don't look at it that way. And it's that slow life strategy that they'll get around to it when they get around to it. You know, one day I'll drive, one day I'll do this, but they don't seem in a hurry. And that's something that's different, because our generation, we were in a hurry to do everything. And a lot of these young folks today, well, you know, they'll get to it when they get to it. Gen Z has also followed the trend toward individualism on steroids. If you haven't noticed, young people today, they kind of do what they want. They have their own ideas, their own uh, agendas, and, you know, that's what they are interested in doing. You know, they're not so much interested maybe in following the crowd. They just want to do what they want to do. They value experiences over expectations. You know, the generations that came before them, you know, they had expectations. They had duty that was built into them. Young people today, not so much. Gen Z is also the least marrying generation in North American history. Some of them say, well, you know, why am I interested in going out and, and, and getting married? I can meet people online. I'm like, I'm talking about real people with skin and bones and that kind of stuff, not just memes and that sort of thing. But uh, my youngest son got married uh, not last summer, the summer before, I guess, 2022, uh, I guess it was. He was 30, or almost 30. I got married when I was 21. That's not a value judgment. It's just, you know, the way things are. A lot of you probably got married earlier, but this generation is delaying marriage longer than any generation 
in American history. Gen Z is also very concerned about safety. Growing up during the COVID-19 era. Can I tell you something about COVID? I, I just, I, I got to say this. Um, I got COVID four months after it became a thing. I didn't even know I had it, and I was sick as a dog. I thought I was dying. But I did something that really marks me as, a, as a, an outstanding individual or perhaps a raving idiot or maybe both of those at the same time. I lost my sense of taste and my sense of smell, and I was the only person in the United States that never stopped eating the whole time. I just kept eating and eating. I couldn't taste it. But I, I'm thinking, my brain is telling me that's what this tastes like, so I know it tastes good, even though I can't taste it. And my wife looked at me and said, you need help. And I said, yeah, that's probably the case. Um, but these young people, you know, COVID this and COVID that, and they got masks on and this. And I figured, I had COVID. I've had five COVID shots. I've had all the boosters, all the vaccinations. I'm, I'm done with COVID, okay? Something's going to kill me, but it ain't going to be COVID, and I'm not going to worry about it. But the young people, they're still worried about some of those things because that's the world that they've grown up in. Gen Z is also more politically aware and engaged than their Gen X parents. I always kind of laugh at this. As, as you get older, you can kind of have the benefit of perspective that young people just don't have. But they're always thinking whoever the latest, greatest thing is, uh, this guy is going to change things, or this woman's going to change things, and when we get him into office, boy, it's going to be, you know, brighter days ahead. And when she gets in, all of these bad things that we've dealt can, can I tell you this? I've lived through presidential elections since Johnson versus Goldwater in 1964, and you know how many of them have had substantive effects on my life? About that many of them. Okay, it's like the talking head song, same as it ever was, same as it ever was, same as it ever was. And if we get through this one this year, I don't know, it's probably going to be the same as it ever was. Even though the young people always think that there's something around the corner. Gen Z is also more depressed and less connected than previous generations. Now, most psychologists will tell you it's because of two things. And really, the two things are kind of one thing. It's the presence of social media and the effects that that has on young people, and it's the ubiquity of cell phones. Now, you remember back in the day when TV became a thing, uh, there were some preachers, Brother Clower probably remembers some of those. I hope Brother Clower wasn't saying this kind of thing, but preachers were, you know, that TV, that TV's of the devil. Well, yeah, TV can be of the devil. TV can also be a really cool thing. And when I'd hear preachers, you know, you should get rid of your TV. And I'm like, look, Einstein, how am I going to watch a ball game if I get rid of my TV? We're not getting rid of the TV, okay? And that's the same thing with people. Those phones, those phones are bad. Get rid of the phones. Can we say this? Phones are here to stay. People aren't going to get rid of phones. If you want to go ahead and, and go on a crusade, a one-man uh, band against phones, you can do that. And everybody's going to think you're nuttier than a fruitcake. You're going to be like the guy with the rainbow afro that held up the John 3.16 sign. Uh, you know, repent, the end is near. Well, that's kind of the way it is. Here's what we need to do with phones, particularly with young people. Let's just have a little common sense and a little balance about those things. Here's one of the problems with the ubiquity of social media and phones. 
Do you realize that depression rates have more than doubled in the last generation, in the last 10, 15, 20 years? Suicide rates have doubled. And psychologists will tell you that a lot of this can be tied right back to pressures in social media and other things. Because anytime you view the world through the lens of social media, it emphasizes themes such as anger, division, and despondency. Not only that, it severs young people from traditional sources of happiness and contentment such as personal relationships, marriage, and religion. Now think for just a moment about how profound a statement that is. I would suggest that personal relationships and marriage and religion are probably the source of much of our happiness. But if you didn't have any of those things, you're going to find yourself to drift and struggling, and so many young people are. Michael Brown makes this observation. It may come as no surprise that the influence of Christianity in the United States is waning. Rates of church attendance, religious affiliation, belief in God, prayer, and Bible reading have been dropping for decades. Americans' beliefs are becoming more post-Christian and concurrently religious identity is changing. So at this juncture, enter Generation Z. Born between 1999 and 2015, they are the first truly post-Christian generation. So how do we explain that? What's the cause of that? Well, I can assure you it's not because the Bible is any less true or the gospel is any less powerful or Jesus is any less risen, or God is any less good. To the contrary, around the globe, especially in the global south, in Asia, in Africa, in South America, in country after country, the gospel is spreading at an extraordinary pace. And right here in America, the spirit is still moving, the gospel is still changing lives, and people are being transformed. So what is it then that's the problem with Gen Z? Why is it that they are less churched and less devout and less religious and less steeped in the Bible than other generations? Well, in my estimation, the problem is not so much with Gen Z as with the people who raised Gen Z, with the parents. Let's notice a few things that need to change regarding that. First, many of these young people have been raised in superficial Christian homes. Their parents, if they've embraced Christianity at all, have embraced a lightweight, me-oriented, prosperity-type gospel, which is a far cry from the real gospel of Jesus. Let me give you an illustration about what we mean by that. I was doing a gospel meeting in a little rural burg called Hampton, Arkansas back in 2017, I think it was, a long time ago, seven years ago. You know how those meetings go, we'd had three lessons on Sunday and then Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night and I was driving back and forth and I was kind of worn out, but I was going back home, it was about a two hour drive back to Little Rock, so I went back that night. 
I was trying to stay awake. I didn't want to listen to any music. I thought, I'll listen to some kind of a you know, talk radio or something that'll kind of keep me engaged and, and keep my, my focus sharp. So I'm flipping through. I got satellite radio. You got, you know, 600 channels or whatever it is. And I flipped across one of them in the talk radio section, and it said on my uh, display, Joel Osteen Radio. And my first thought was, oi vey, you know, really, I, I'm, I'm tired. I don't want to hear Joel Osteen rate. And I thought, you know, I, I'll give it a second. Maybe the man will have something to say that will be semi-helpful. You know, sometimes I can be a little closed-minded. I'm trying to be more open-minded. So I'll listen for a minute. I made it three minutes until I turned it. Here's what he said. I still remember this verbatim. He said, yeah, you know, back, you ever get on one of those flights and you're just all crowded in there, you know, you know, and coach where that is. I'm like, you're five foot seven and you weigh 130 pounds. You could do jumping jacks in between the seats, okay? You know, he's not one of these big strapping Ben Hogan type guys. He's a little fella. He said, well, back in the day I was in coach and I'm like, when? You've got like five planes now, but I'm ruining the story. So he said, I was in coach and, you know, I was just crowded and, and I just prayed. And I prayed right now, Lord Jesus please upgrade me to first class. And I thought, he's pulling my leg. He's not serious here. No, but he was. He was serious. And would you believe it? 30 seconds later, the flight attendant came back and said, here's the list of people that have been upgraded to first class. And the first one was Joel Osteen. And you want to know why some people don't want to have anything to do with Christianity? That's, that's part and parcel right there. I remember Jesus saying something distinctly dissimilar to that when somebody was going, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. You remember what he said? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So apparently Jesus didn't know that he could have prayed to himself and he would have been upgraded, if not the first class, at least given a pillow. Okay? What this kind of Christianity is, is a big nothing burger. It doesn't transform us. It doesn't convict us. It doesn't empower us to live above sin. It certainly doesn't equip us to deal with the temptations and the pleasures of the ages. In fact, all it does is affirm us and adds to us. It makes us feel good without addressing the underlying problems. Such a gospel cannot withstand the cravings and pressures and distractions of the world. Such a gospel will not grow stronger across generational lines. Instead, it loses its luster in the light of everyday life. Its lack of deep roots are exposed over time. You want to know one of the problems with Gen Z? This is the gospel to which they've been exposed. That's not a gospel. It's a fake gospel. It's a pseudo gospel. It's not a real gospel that changes anyone's life. So the lesson for those of us who are Christian leaders and Christian parents is simple. Don't cheapen the message. Deepen the message. That's what they need to see. These young people need to see a real, bona fide, general gospel. Second, and closely related to the first, Gen Zers have not been called to leave everything and follow Jesus. 
for all practical purposes, these kids have never been challenged to make a serious commitment. Consequently, they do not recognize the value and weight of the cross. Twenty years ago, a young man came up to a minister and said, give me a cause and I'll die for it. And you know, there are a lot of people of that generation that would probably say the same thing. And even the younger generations coming up behind that. But you know, so many people today, they're being called to make great sacrifices and do great things for different things, but not so much in the church. For instance, social justice calls on young people to make radical choices. Climate change challenges them to take urgent action. But the church, religion, Jesus, what's the big deal? Where's the sense of urgency? What's the cause? You remember when David came out and was getting ready to go mano a mano with Goliath? In 1 Samuel 17 and verse 29, and his brother Liab was aligning him up and basically saying, why don't you get out of here? You're not contributing anything to this. And David said this, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? There is a cause, folks. We had better get back to telling young people that the cause exists in following Jesus Christ. The cause is not in politics. The cause is not in climate change or any of these other things. The cause is in following Jesus. And the message here should be clear. If we want to make real disciples, if we want to raise up young people who have a physical, vigorous commitment to Jesus, we need to set the bar high and not set the bar low. We need to offer grace and forgiveness and mercy through the blood of Jesus and not mix in any man-made religious restrictions or not go the way that some of our brethren are doing, turning the church into a vehicle for entertainment. That's not the purpose of us following Jesus is to be entertained. We need to lay out the real radical nature of salvation because following Jesus means living a brand new life. Not a watered-down life, but a completely different life. Third, the church, in so many instances, was not ready for the onslaught of the anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christian propaganda. And this is where social media has had devastating uh, results. With the advent of social media and all the young people being on social media, these Gen Zers have been exposed to all kinds of objections and attacks to their faith at younger and younger ages. Leading apologist Josh McDowell has said that the objections that college students were being confronted with in the past are now hitting young people at the ages of 12 and 13. But in contrast with the college students, these younger kids have not developed as many critical thinking skills. Plus, in our soundbite generation, a catchy slogan or a cute meme carries a lot more weight than a powerfully reasoned argument. And these young people are finding themselves in over their heads, and they don't really know what to say in response to these things. In his classic book, God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew describes a surprising discovery he made in his early years of ministry 
uh, behind the former Iron Curtain. In the country of Yugoslavia, he noticed that the churches there seemed to have more liberty than in other communist countries. And yet, these churches were almost completely devoid of young people. And he asked a friend about it, and the friend called up a woman who attended that church. Why isn't your son Joseph here with you? He asked. Joseph was her son. He was 10 years old. And she gave this by way of reply. I'm an uneducated peasant. What can I do? The schools tell my son there is no God. The educated people say there is no God. Why should he believe me? Do you realize that applies a lot more to us today than we might imagine? That's not to say that our kids and our grandkids don't love us. They do. But they're listening to the experts. They're listening to the scientists. They're listening to the intellectuals, to the professors. You know, we're just working class stiffs. You know, we're not on the same intellectual level as those people. Generation Z was born between 1999 and 2015. Do you realize that right smack dab in the middle of that, 2007, that year was dubbed the year of the atheist. And that's when authors like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and others came to national and international prominence with their frontal assaults on the Bible, on God, and on the Christian faith. And while Christian intellectuals were able to deal with their objections rather easily, those answers, for the most part, did not reach the average man or the average woman in the pew, let alone their children. I'll give you an example of this. I still remember when Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, came out. I bought it in hardcover the week it came out and read it that week. I'd read several other things from him. I'd read The Blind Watchmaker and a couple of other books that he'd written. But this was supposed to be hitting with the force of a tsunami. And I thought, okay, I'm going to listen to this man. And he says there is no God and that the Bible is wrong. And I want to hear his argument. Hit me. I'm, I'm right here. So I read the book. And I kept waiting and waiting and waiting. I wanted to hear his answer for the rise of life. You do realize there was nothing, and then boom, and then there's everything, and then according to Dawkins and others, then billions of years as uh, folks started uh, crawling out of uh, uh, the primordial ooze, then human beings evolved. That's what he says. Where they come from? Why here? Why, why on earth? There doesn't seem to be life anywhere else. Hit me. What, what's the explanation? I went through the whole stinking book, I think six, 700 pages, whatever it was, and I'm waiting on it, and here's his explanation as he gets toward the end of the book. Well, some have wondered why we have life here and why life doesn't appear to be somewhere else, but here's the thing. The conditions were just right here, and with billions and billions and billions of universes, we would expect life to arise somewhere, so life came about, and that's why it is, and quit asking questions. And I started laughing. I'm like, that's your explanation? This is what we've been afraid of? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Dawkins has said that people who are religious are mentally ill, which 
Congratulations, all of you have a form of mental illness and you didn't even realize it until you just walked in here. I wish you well, I hope you get treatment. Here's the thing about Dawkins. Dawkins says we're mentally ill because there's no evidence that God exists, no evidence at all. But he says on the, basically in the next paragraph, he is a big believer that the government and other entities should continue to pour millions and even billions of dollars into the SETI project. SETI being an acronym, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, S-E-T-I. He says there's no doubt that there's life elsewhere in the universe, even though we don't have any evidence for it. So let me get this straight. I'm an idiot for believing that there's a God, and you're a genius for believing there's an E.T. We've got to do a better job of getting a hold of our young people and letting them know that this is the kind of nonsense that passes for science. This is one man's idea. But these arguments that these people are pushing carry with them great emotional weight, and at the time when an intellectual response was needed the most, many churches just kind of hid their heads in the sand like an ostrich. You can't do it. When people bring questions, you've got to give them answers. And too many times we failed these young people. There's a fourth issue here. Gen Z has grown up in the midst of LGBTQ activism, which in turn has done a terrific job of portraying Christians as hostile, backwards, primitive bigots. Who wants to associate with people like that? A few years ago, a professor at Boston University, Stephen Prothero, wrote a book that's really fascinating called uh, Why the Liberals Always Win the Culture Wars. And I can save you reading the whole book. Here's the premise of the book. Everything in the world trends toward freedom and openness. So in the times past when this bunch is running things is against this and against this and against this and against that, sooner or later, the things that were verboten are going to be up for grabs. And you couldn't do this, and now you can do it. And that goes to every single thing that you can imagine whether it's same-sex marriage or abortion or this or whatever you want it, usually everything trends toward permissiveness and freedom. That's what Prothero said. He said religious people can go and, and pick it and they can demonstrate and they can boycott, but eventually these things are going to happen. And you've seen that in your life and I've seen it in mine. But here's the thing when it comes to the LGBTQ issues. For church leaders... Rather than leading the way with a compassionate, kind, but uncompromising response, we've all too often just retreated from these controversial issues. And not wanting to offend anybody or hurt anyone's feelings, we failed to help those who have been struggling who are even in our midst. Not mentioning failing to help those who are living outside of our doors. In other words, well, if we talk about this, it's going to make someone uncomfortable, so let's just not talk about it. A wise person once said, I'd give attribution to this, but I don't remember who it was. I think it was that person who goes by anonymous. But they said, you know the only thing that happens when you sweep things under the rug? 
you lump up the rug. There are going to be things you're just going to have to get into. You're going to have to have a dialogue. You're going to have to have a discussion, a conversation. And so many of these young people, we're sending them out there like lambs to the slaughter. They don't know what to say to their friends who are pro-LGBTQ. They don't know what to say about these intellectuals saying there's no God and the Bible's full of hot air. They don't know what to say. So what do we do about all of this? Well, I'm glad you asked. There are some solutions to these queries if we'll just get serious about meeting these challenges and meeting them head on. Let me offer a few before we close tonight. First, we need to recover our love and our passion for the Lord, seeking him for personal revival. You know what the best thing that you can do for the young people in your community, the young people at this congregation, the young people in your family? Be a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. Let them see that. Let them see your commitment to the Lord. That will overwhelm almost everything else. You know, if my two sons were here today, one's 33 and one's 30, if you gave them 15 minutes to hold court and say, tell us some stuff about your dad, they could tell you some stuff, I guarantee you. Uh, if you think I'm remotely interesting, I'm 10 times more interesting than you think I am. You're just getting a, a little bit of the tip of the iceberg here. They could tell you some stories. But you know what would overshadow all of those stories, I'm pretty confident? They say, Dad loves the Lord. Dad's a pain. Dad's got a big mouth. Dad's got a million opinions. Dad's got very careful ideas that this should be done this way and that should be done. They tell you all that, but the biggest thing, Dad loves the Lord. You've got to have that in your family. You've got to have that in the church. Young people need to see that. They need to see that for us to live is Christ, to die is gain. They need to understand that. And if we can't show them that, then not much else we show them is really going to matter that much. Secondly, we talked about this last night. I won't beat a dead horse too much. But we must, must get back to the biblical gospel without dilution or mixture or admixture. We've got to teach the Bible, okay? I was at a funeral about a week, a week ago Saturday, I guess it was. I went, we had three funerals in our congregation uh, and one day I got to go to two of them. I, two were at the same time, different places. I couldn't be in two places at one time. The one was run by some denominational ministers. And you know, they told the story about this guy. He was one of these masters of the universe. He played football at a small, congreg or a small uh, college in Arkansas, big six-foot-five, 250-pound guy, went right into the financial world, took it by storm, made millions and millions of dollars, went, lived in Puerto Rico, just had more money than, you know, Carter's got little pills, as they said. And then at the age of 46... He dies of an aneurysm. Sad story. But he was, we, he was uh, the son-in-law of two of our most faithful members. But the preachers that were there, that were holding court, they were in two different denominations. They closed, the, they closed the funeral this way. He said, well, you know, this might be a little unconventional, but, you know, I want to tell all of you who are here that if you're not a Christian, okay, 
Here's what you need to do. If you don't think Jesus is real, you need to pray to Jesus. Just pray to Jesus, say that prayer, and you'll have an experience. I don't think I've ever wanted to get up and finish a thought more in my life than I did that day. I thought, you know, that, that might sound warm and fuzzy. My friend, give me book, chapter, and verse for that. I remember distinctly that the very first time in this world that the gospel was preached in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and Peter paints the picture that Jesus, the guy that you crucified, is now both Lord and Christ because God has elevated him to that esteemed position. And the Bible says that that crowd, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? You remember what Peter said? You should pray, and then you'll have an experience. No, he didn't. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's my question. Are you going to come up with a better answer for what we must do to be saved than that? There isn't a better answer to that question. That's the original answer. Why in the world would we imagine that in our limited wisdom that we can substitute a better way to be saved than the one that God established? I don't understand that. We've got to get back to the biblical gospel without dilution, without substitution, without mixture. Number three, we need to lean on the power of the Spirit, believing that a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit can transform even the worst of sinners. Listen to this passage in Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When Peter told those people to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus, he says your sins are going to be forgiven. God's going to send the gift of the Spirit to live or to dwell within you. When we continue to walk in faith, when we continue to keep in step with the Spirit, we continue to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. That's what we need to be telling these young people. That's what we need to be telling ourselves. Fourth, we need to get equipped in basic apologetics using so many of the terrific resources that are out there today. I can tell you this, I've learned a hundred times more about science since I graduated from college than I ever knew before. Because I've seen that this is a battleground issue, and I have read, and I have studied, and I have dug. Not to the point that I am an expert on those things, certainly I'm not. But I can engage almost anybody in the conversation on the main points and on the important facts. We've got to get to that point. We've got to be able to tell our young people. I tell young people everywhere I go, look, 
You learn as much of the Bible as you can, and you learn as much science as you can, because the Bible and science are not in conflict. The Bible and some theories of science are in conflict, but here's the thing. Anything that is true belongs to God, because God is truth. Anything that is true is in the province of God. We need to tell our young people that. We don't need to run from these fights. We need to wade right in and engage. And fifth, in a similar way, we need to run, not walk, but run to the front lines of culture rather than running away from them, proclaiming that God has a better way. As we close tonight, can I tell you, I, I want to make a prediction. Here's my prediction. You know, in a few years, I'll have gone to be with the Lord, and any of you that are still around, especially the young people, you remember I said this this night. We said it last night. The pendulum is going to swing back. It's going to swing back. I know right now we think the best thing that we can do is that women can marry women and men can marry men. And, uh, you know, this young man can turn into a young woman and this young woman can become a man. And everything is, is hunky-dory and great. And, and, and that's what we should be about. We should be about freedom and self-expression. How do you think all this is going to end? You know how this is going to end, okay? If something is not of God, it's going to fail, okay? These things are going to fail. We're already seeing mental health experts saying that some of these young people that are transitioning from one gender to the next, that it's not working out very well. Raise your hand if you could have seen that coming, okay? That's where this is going. Why on earth would a people that have the answers to life's questions that God has given us in the Bible. Why would we run and not be involved in these discussions and in these conversations? We cannot abandon our young people and leave them to fend for themselves. We've got to equip them. We've got to strengthen them. We've got to teach them that following God's way is always the right way. It's always the right way. It doesn't matter what everyone else in society thinks. One man plus God is a majority. That's all that it is. We've got to understand that. Churches that get this are going to grow. They're going to be thriving places where people are going to want to be involved. And guess what? Even though Gen Z is basically the least church generation in American history, I was there not less than a month ago at the Werner Von Braun Convention Center in Huntsville, Alabama, and there were well over 3,000 young people that are seeking the Lord. When you're told, oh, young people today, they don't care about Jesus. Yes, they do. There's some of them that don't. There's some older people that don't care about Jesus. So rather than looking at how bad things are, and there are reasons for concern, let's look at how ripe the harvest is. You remember what Jesus said in looking around? He said, just look around you. The fields are ready for harvest. He'd say the same thing today. But he said, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers. And that's where we come in. God is calling us to get involved in the fight for young people. You know, not only is the future of the republic at stake, 
Friends, the future of the planet is at stake. And the future of people and where they will spend eternity, most importantly, is at stake. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. And if you're here tonight, and what you need to do is to step forward and walk down this aisle and say like those 3,000 on Pentecost said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And repenting of your sins, you can put him on in the waters of baptism to have your sins forgiven and to be given the gift of the Spirit to live within you. If you are a Christian, but you've allowed other things to creep in and water down and compromise that commitment that you had to the Lord, you can do something about that tonight. You can rededicate yourself to the cause of Christ. And you can say that I am here the same way that Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And Lord, I'm here tonight, and I'm asking you to send me out on the front lines to make a difference in the fight for people and in the fight for young people. Whatever the need that you may have, if the invitation of Jesus is calling to you, we invite you to come as together we stand.